The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, <clears throat> perhaps just in a very ordinary, simple way, just close your eyes for a moment. And <clears throat> I'm going to say something and then ask a question. And just you're sitting here, just with your eyes closed, just giving yourself some time to reflect on the question. So a time-honored practice in Buddhism is the practice of not killing, the practice of not taking what is not given, and the practice of not engaging in sexual misconduct. What do you think the benefits and reasons are for why this is an important part of Buddhist practice? If there are multiple reasons why it's important, can you think of other other reasons that you've than you've, what you've already come up with? What's the value of abstaining from killing, in, intentionally injuring others, animals, not stealing, not taking what is not given? not engaging in sexual misconduct. Okay, and then you can open your eyes. So this factor of the Eightfold Path, right action, involves these three restraints, three things we abstain from. They are um, three of what's known as the five precepts. The, the precept of not lying is covered in the Eightfold Path Factor that we did last month, um, right speech. So it doesn't have to be covered again because it's already been covered. And some people notice that the fifth precept, not engaging intoxicants, is nowhere mentioned in the Eightfold Path. And um, there are various theories about that, why it's not there, or ideas about it. Some people are delighted. <laughs> and um, the, um, but it's certainly there in the precepts, and certainly other places in the discourses of the Buddha. The Buddha uh, encouraged people not to be involved in intoxicating the mind. Um, one of the most common reasons is that um, uh, under the influence of intoxication, 
that person is more likely to break the first four precepts. Um, so the topic of today, that uh, not killing, is, um, as I said earlier, I, I, I read the Pali to mean also not injuring, not in, involve intentional injury of, uh, and the word is of beings that breathe, breathing beings. And uh, probably in English we would call it sentient beings, uh, beings that have consciousness. So uh, explicitly excluded from this are plants. Uh, plants don't have breathe in the same way. They don't breathe through their lungs. So um, they're not considered sentient or have consciousness in the same way that insects have or animals or humans. And so um, avoiding, uh, in, and the idea is the intentional killing or the intentional causing harm. And the intentionality is a very important part of it. Um, and uh, so an accidental killing of insects or even people certainly should be avoided, but it's not the same, doesn't have the same consequence, doesn't fit into the same category as the intentional uh, uh, causing harm that way. Uh, for uh, Buddhist monastics, the bar is higher than it is for lay people. Uh, Buddhist monastics are not supposed to be involved uh, in any kind of way that um, um, can be seen as supportive of the killing of beings. Um, so, you know, certainly not advising people to do any kind of killing and um, uh, providing the means for it or anything. Um, one of the interesting rules for monastics is monastics are allowed to eat meat unless they know the animal was killed to provide food for them. If they know the animal was killed to provide food for them, then they're not allowed to eat that food. Otherwise, if it's meat that just someone has around and, and just when they show up and they say, oh, by the way, would you like some food? And they put them in their bowl, then the monastics are allowed to eat that meat. Um, the, um, the second of these right actions, uh, it, it says not taking what is not given. <clears throat> it's different than saying not stealing because it's kind of a higher bar or it's more inclusive. Uh, if it hasn't been offered or given, don't take it. And that includes uh, not borrowing things or using things that um, you know, belong to other people. Even if you're not stealing it, you might be using it unless it's been offered and given to, for you to use. Uh, one of the nice, I think, inspiring things about monastics you have to, again have a high bar for this they're interpreting this if they go to your house if you invite them to your house and, you, and they come into your living room and you have some beautiful object or book on your coffee table for example in the living room and you know anybody else would pick it up and look at it uh, they won't touch it unless you say hey look at that you know you, 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 if you want to look at that or if you say I have a lot of books in my living room you're welcome to look at any of them unless it's clearly offered they won't touch it, they won't touch it. And um, the only exception that I know of, there might be some exception, apparently they're allowed to um, help themselves with a glass of water. <laughs> um, so, but you know, it's pretty minimal. So, um, so it's kind of, you know, this kind of, so only if it's offered. And, um, and recently, I think it was in Gunaratna's book, Bhante Gunaratna's book, he talks about also you don't take people's ideas unless it's offered. So um, be careful with ideas as well. 
So, um, <clears throat> and then the third is not involved in sexual misconduct. Uh, the ancient texts and the commentaries have lay out the definitions of what this means. If you read Bhikkhubodhi's book on the Eightfold Path, he quotes the ancient commentary about this. And uh, I think that most people in the modern West um, don't really, won't really kind of go along with exactly how the commentaries say it because it tends to be a, a difference between how women are supposed to understand it and how men are supposed to understand it, or how it's pre- predicted, uh, described. Um, but uh, maybe uh, uh, you know, expressing cultural differences between how we understand it here in the West. And I think here in the West, we would like everyone to treat the issue of sexual misconduct the same way. And the principle <clears throat> that I think is <clears throat> really important around sexual misconduct, how, to, how it's defined, it's simply defined by not causing harm. Uh, because uh, to put any kind of you know, specific ideas, this kind of behavior is wrong and this, and this is right, um, um, you know, then you it just, I don't know, it's, it's just, you know, it's not useful probably to do that. Uh, but uh, no harmful behavior. No one gets harmed in the process. And so both uh, no harm your partner, you don't harm yourself, but also you don't harm other people who are directly connected. So if, if someone has a commitment to someone else, that um, you, know, you, you don't want to violate that commitment, their marriage vows or their commitment vows or something. Um, you don't want to help them violate it or do something like that. Um, the ancient world also talks about uh, you don't want to uh, have sexual relationship with someone who's under the guardianship of someone else. And I think how that kind of translates into our culture is an, uh, no uh, sex with children <clears throat> who are still kind of under the care of their parents. So the principle of not causing harm, and uh, it's a high, you know, can have a high bar, a high standard if you want to use it that way, because even people who are married or have, you know, legitimate, you know, kind of culturally legitimate ways of being sexually involved with each other, um, sexuality is such a complicated form of expression that the motivations behind it uh, can be multifarious, multi, multi, you know, there's a lot of different kind of motivations and attitudes and that goes. It's probably one of the most complicated forms of, ex- of expression of communications that human beings have is sexual. It's not just, you know, pure, raw animal desire. Um, it's a lot that goes on. And so what's, what's behind it? Is it, uh, is there any kind of, you know, there, there's a fair amount of sexuality kind of in our culture, that is an expression of anger and power and, and that uh, gets played out. Um, and uh, fear is an issue that gets played out and, and you know, insecurity and a lot of different things get played out in that kind of relationship. And so being careful with it and not causing harm, not intending harm, is a very, very high uh, standard if you really want to take it that way. You can take it if you're really careful, um, even in, for example, in committed relationships. So, um, these three, avoiding harm through these three ways is uh, right, you know, right action. And uh, so why is this an important issue in Buddhism? Why is this an important support, an element of Buddhist practice? What are some of the different reasons and benefits from adhering to this as, if, if what one, one person wants to do is to engage in Buddhist practice or, or even in mindfulness practice? Yes? 
I was thinking that uh, all three of these are very supportive and necessary for Sangha. For Sangha, for community. Yeah. Great. Great. So, um, thank you. It's good. So, what I'd like to do is to actually have you guys form into groups and uh, explore this and massage this and see if you can kind of just kind of go deeper and deeper and deeper into why is this important element of the practice? Why do you think this is so central that it would be in the Eightfold Path? And, and what are the benefits of really uh, having a high bar, a high standard for how to interpret and understand these things in your life? And um, what are the, what, you know, what, how could this benefit you to have a high standard and really be committed? I suspect that very, very few of you here are involved with killing humans. And so that, you know, that standard is already met. <clears throat> and probably very few of you are involved in killing <clears throat> large animals. But some of you might have, have questions around or involved in things like um, uh, fumigating your homes or the ants that come in your house or uh, that way. Or perhaps there are indirect ways in which your behavior and your actions uh, uh, connect to the killing of other people or other animals elsewhere that you feel kind of uh, uncomfortable with because you know you don't want to have any kind of even though you don't intentionally want to kill um, the uh, you know you, you know you happen to have all, all your investments in manufacture of AK-15s and you know so you know well I don't know I, you know you don't intend to kill anyone but so there's it could be a, you know what's the advantage for you what's the benefit of you you know to have a high standard around this idea of not killing or of not taking what's not given. Um, uh, so that's the topic. So I'm, let me, I'm trying to, I haven't decided exactly yet how to do this. So if you could please be patient for a moment while I kind of get an idea. Um, so I think we'll, we'll do this in two parts. I think what I'd like us to do, you to do is to do this first in groups of five, and um, and then let's uh, and just have, explore this topic again. I think going around the circle uh, with no one taking a long time to kind of go on with the whole philosophy, but you just offer uh, maybe the principle can be like offer one thing, and then uh, and then if you have more to say, wait until you come around again because of this value of how you influence and benefit from what you hear from other people and how that comes around to you and then you've been changed by that and you maybe offer something different or have a new perspective to offer. And It's kind of like a group mind. It's kind of like the group as a whole is finding their way. Rather than seeing yourself as the individual, it's all about you, uh, you're actually joining five other, four other people to form kind of, kind of like a group mind, a group exploration, and, and you're influencing each other and seeing what arises over time. The, um, and how your group wants to do it, it's up to you a little bit. I mean, you could take each of the three restraints and take, you know, do each one f- one at a time and go, or you could take all three all at once um, and explore it. And then once, the, once you've done that for a while, and uh, probably about 20 minutes or so as a group, 15, 20 minutes, I'll kind of track the, what it feels like in the room. Uh, then I, what I'd like to do is to take a break and just sit quietly for a moment and just be quiet and, and breathe for maybe a minute or so. And then I think um, 
I would like to, you to divide up a different way. The second time, I'll explain this again, so don't worry about it. But the second way is uh, um, to find uh, one other person to sit with. And uh, someone who not, was not in your group. So mix it up and find someone else. And, um, and then with one other person, uh, uh, have a discussion about what has really come up to you most personally around this discussion, around these actions. Uh, what you know? What you know? If, what kind of personal? If you and you don't have to share something, anything you don't want to share, but a chance one-on-one to uh, really drop down into a much more personal uh, discussion. And I'll I'll I'll, I'll frame that or explain that um, more when the time comes. So that's the plan. So you know what the plan is. And um, and um, and uh, any time you know, any time these Dharma practice days, if we have these kinds of discussions. If uh, something has happened in the course of the day, like you've really been touched in some important way or gotten really reflective and you want to be by yourself, you don't have to participate. You can sit quietly in a corner or sit outside. But um, whenever you do participate, it's also a a gift to the rest of the group because we're all kind of doing it together. So is there any questions about that? Yes? So when you came to your group, when you came to your group, you first uh, asked the, uh, what, what are questions or issues you have around this topic? Yeah, and then see if there's a consensus around working on any particular one of them. So I, each group can decide for themselves what they want to do, and you can ask your group if you request that. But the topic of the discussion is uh, really, you know, is for focus is not the issues you have with it, with these these ideas, and the questions you have about how it's, uh, but rather it's more specific is, what are the benefits that come from practicing these three restraints if you're involved you know, in your life and in Buddhist practice? Uh, why is this, in what ways could it be import, really important to adhere to this, to practice, to live by these three precepts? And, um, and also, especially, like, what's the benefits from doing so? And it would be really great if by the time you finish your discussion, um, you discovered benefits you had never imagined before. It kind of kind of expanded the range. Wow, I had no idea that I could do this as part of it, and this as part of it, and, and um, just really stretch in that way. So that's that's the topic for this discussion. Is okay? And um, anything else? Yes, here. Under the. Um Why is it okay to kill animals to eat for human consumption? Uh, so it's it's not okay if, if you're li- if you're living by the first precept, and it's not okay for you to kill the animal to eat. But you're but eating animals that other people people have, have killed. killed. But yeah. why is that okay? I don't know if it's okay, but uh, uh, in some some uh, traditions of Buddhism are uh, emphasize vegetarianism. Um, so in the Theravadan tradition, they don't emphasize it for lay people, except you're not supposed to kill anything for yourself. And it, it can seem a little bit hypocritical, or it can seem a little bit like you're supporting the killing of animals by eating meat. When I was in Burma at the monastery there, uh, it was a very large monastery. There were a couple of thousand monastics who were practic- people who were practicing there. And they would have a large um, you know, lunches with all these 
thousands of people. And there was a lot of pork, lots of pork being eaten. So at one point I asked the abbot, I said, you know, there's, I told him about the, <clears throat> supply, the, the laws of supply and demand. And I said, someone in the monastery, the lay people, not the monks, people in the kitchen, would go to the market every morning and they'd buy all this pork. And I said, the amount of pork that's being bought here um, is so much that it, there has to be, you know, people are planning, somehow the market people are planning ahead and, buy, and killing enough pigs to have enough pork for the monastery. And, you know, if we didn't, if there wasn't such a demand coming from the monastery, I think that it would probably mean less pigs got killed. And he expressed that he didn't have a clue what I was talking about. <laughs> and whether that's true or not, or I don't know, but the supply and demand had not made it to Burma. <laughs> so that conversation didn't go anywhere. Um, so I think there are some people who feel that sensitivity and, and, and feel it, understand it that way, and so that's one of the reasons to be vegetarian or not. For the time, for the uh, this is how I understand how it's come down from the Buddha, in, our, in the Theravada tradition, is that the Buddha uh, only felt that he could have strict rules for his monastics. He did not. Uh, he was. It wasn't his place. He didn't have the authority to tell people who were monastics what they should do with their lives. And he didn't try to, except sometimes very general principles, like the five precepts, for example. <clears throat> and, um, and uh, you know, it's not a religion the way we think of religion that's going to provide us with all the strictures and rules that we're going to live by. Uh, it's a path of practice to liberation. But those who were monastics, he had these rules. And uh, it, was a, it was a monastics are people who are radical renunciants. <clears throat> So they have no money, they have very few goods, and they rely on, uh, and they're not allowed to keep food overnight. And so they re- every day they rely on the food that's offered to them by the people, good people who want to support them. And uh, if they had, and someone asked the Buddha in his time, shouldn't you make the monastics uh, vegetarians? And he said no. And one of the reasons perhaps for that is that <clears throat> if you're a monastic, monk or nun, and you're wandering around in the morning, and someone sees you who's inspired to feed you and support you, and they happen to have meat, um, it puts a limit on their generosity to say, no, I can't do that, thank you, because, you know, I can't eat meat. And so, well, but, but that's all I have, and, you know, I want to support you. And, well, too bad. <laughs> and, so, um, and so if the animal was not killed for the monastic, it's actually part of their generosity to the people who want to be generous to them is to receive it and eat it. And, and they're not doing anything ethically wrong. There's no intention, in, you know, ethical intention to kill. Uh, the intention is to be supportive of the people who want to support them. Um, so that's why he, he refused to make, allow monastics to be vegetarian. Uh, and for lay people, he didn't want to say what you should do. And, and that's how it's come down to us. And so I think what, what for lay practitioners in our tradition, and what it comes down to is it comes down to each person deciding for themselves what works for their sense of ethics, what works for their life, and to make that decision around that. The, the closest we get to it is that the Buddhist centers, like IMC, are vegetarian centers. So when we have potluck, uh, we prefer people not bring meat to the potluck. Okay? Okay, so... If you can form groups of five, and again, if there's not an exact number of five, if you can walk towards the front, 
then I'll help sort that out, what needs to happen based on that. So, please. <clears throat> Close your eyes and check in with yourself and notice what's happening in your body and your mind, your heart. Noticing the impact of that conversation on you as you're sitting here. And then uh, bringing into focus your breathing. And spend the next minute or so breathing mindfully and perhaps as you exhale, letting go, relaxing. Okay, so now uh, we're going to do the second part of this, and that is uh, for you to partner up with one other person and to discuss with that person um, your own personal relationship with these three precepts or right actions, and not killing or injuring, not uh, taking what's not given, and no sexual misconduct. So your personal relationship to it, you know, the value you have it, how you practice with it, what your issues and concerns around it, the challenges you have. Um, whatever you'd like to share, uh, you don't have to share anything that you're not comfortable with. You don't, this is not true confessions. But, uh, but to uh, share it in a way that, um, uh, uh, with the idea that you're not, the, it's not a confession, it's not like, you're not really sharing it for the purpose of the, of the other person to hear and learn about you and be impressed. Uh, but, rather, but rather it's almost like more the other person's a witness to help you un- hear and listen to yourself and see if you can understand something new about yourself uh, as you talk about what your relationship is it's a little bit hard way of talking but I mean, different than what people are used to but if you can kind of like share yourself with the spirit or the idea listening what, what else can you understand about yourself in this <clears throat> And, um, and I think what, uh, to do it is just, to, again, go back and forth. 
and uh, uh, you don't have to share everything you possibly can about your relationship to it all at once. Share something, uh, like one one aspect, one approach, one perspective, um, and then um, let the other person do the same. And again, like that might prompt you a new reflection, and then offer something back. It's personal for yourself. Um, if you want to ask some very simple <clears throat> uh, questions of each other, you know, one, very simple, not, not a lot, don't go probing, but if you, you know, for clarification or you think it might be helpful to ask a question, if someone said something, you can ask a question and to get a little bit more out of it. But to do that delicately, uh, but mostly just go back and forth and offer your personal, you know, some aspect, some perspective on your personal relationship to... Um, to you know these precepts, and again, as I keep saying, if you find yourself t- saying a story, stories are important. But um, if you find it's a story, a long story, and you know the end of the story, um, uh, get to the end quickly, <clears throat> because it's not, you're talking not just for the sake of the person listening, but really for your own sake. And if you spend a lot of time saying what you already know, uh, you know you're not going to really benefit that much. So, and then the other thing I'd like to suggest. <clears throat> is that um, uh, partner up with people of the same gender for this one. So the men with the men, women with the women, and hopefully that covers the genders here today. I apologize if, apologize if it doesn't. Um, and um, yes? Should it be someone not in your group? Yes, and someone not in your group. So not in that group of five you just had. So if you could if you just look around and, and find someone like that. And then you, we'll have about 15 minutes for this. Oh. So would anybody like to share a little bit what that was like and what came up for you in the process of those discussions? things uh, uh, came up. Um, Because I work with people who kill people, um, I always have a reaction when the subject comes up. um, And uh, and it's difficult for me um, because I have a certain exposure other people don't have and a certain understanding of it. So that's one thing that comes up. Um, the other thing that came up in talking uh, with Sydney is that, you know, I think my favorite precept is that one about um, don't take anything that's not freely given because it, uh, it, it's applied in so many different ways, beyond, way beyond stealing. And one of the things we talked about just at the end of our conversation is that, um, you know, you can take someone's attention without their permission and that, that the way to deal with this is to try to remain uh, mindful of what yes. you're doing at all times. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, we just shared, uh, and that she referred back to your way of saying, uh, asking a person to get to the end of the story. Uh, and we were sharing how often in, in life uh, we're called for patience. Wait, what, 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 for patience. Yes. And we don't have it. 
and how to get to it. Um, a lot of times we are asked to listen to too many details or even not a whole lot of coherence in the material. I really appreciated how you said it, to invite, so it's your story, you know the end of it, <laughs> please deliver it. So, but then, of course, how to do it next time it happens. <laughs> with, um, so what Ellen said and what you're saying are related, because uh, sometimes a, a, a long, long, long story about what happened on vacation is maybe not, hasn't been invited. And exactly, so, that's why I felt so. So you're, you're, you hold, you're holding someone hostage, so you tell them the story. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> so, um, by talking about no killing, I think a uh, more appropriate to- uh, topic for today's culture is no aggression. And uh, I actually uh, brought up in a culture that aggression from women are terrible, okay? And so I think, uh, and, and, and I, in a way, I take pride that I am not an aggressive person. But I also see that um, if you are not you being seen as not aggressive, people will actually bully you more because they know that you are not going to help, hurt them back. Yeah. So that is a dilemma. And but in a way, I know that if I become aggressive, it may become a habit that I will hurt other people when I should not. Yeah. Interesting topic, very interesting. I wonder if the discussion would be different if instead of aggression, we were discussing assertiveness. Is there a difference between aggression and assertiveness? I, um, I have not thought much about it. Uh-huh. I, I heard that this assertiveness a lot, but I guess I need to think more about uh-huh. it. And then the other thing that makes me wonder, and the question about being bullied, is because I, it, would, it would be sad if the only alternative to not being bullied is to be aggressive yourself. That would be kind of sad. Um, there's also a place of standing your ground and looking the bully right in the eye or some version of that, right? So, so there's, there's being bullied, which is terrible, and there's also, in a certain kind of way, being bullyable. <laughs> I mean, in that how we receive the bullying, how we receive other people's aggression, is a very important issue also. And some people can be, can be bullied and it doesn't affect them, especially if it's not physical. And other people can be, um, you know, they, they, they look them right in the eye and say, don't do that. And other people uh, uh, collapse under the bullying. And so to somehow not become bullyable. Uh, I actually encounter bullying a lot, so I have a lot of opinion about this. Yeah. I think um, some people 
have a more powerful presence. Yes. Maybe be a taller, bigger. Yes. Okay. And it's easy for them to be assertive because, um, you know, people usually, the bullies take on the people who think that would not fight back. Right. And, uh, and if when you are bullied, it's, it's similar to you are being somebody stick a knife in you. You're being weakened by that person at that moment. And uh, the culture's expectation is that the one that's being bullied have to stand up for themselves. But it's it's but they don't know that you are already being weakened by that person. It's mm. very hard, and especially you being continuously bullied. Yeah, that you are weakened even more. Yeah, that's a sad. That's a that's a, that's a huge issue in uh, this culture here, and and. Um, there would be, uh, in American culture, they're beginning to look at it much more directly uh, in schools. And there are a lot of schools that uh, are involved in programs now and explorations of how to deal with bullying. But I don't think it's traveled from the schools up into the adult realm very, very, well, very, very well yet. And I think it's an issue that is well worth as a culture as a whole for us to look at. Thank you. So uh, in line with that, uh, the idea of what motivates somebody to bully or to steal, uh, you know, it's often um, like an adrenaline surge. I've known people that uh, will do bad things uh, and get some kind of joy out of it. And uh, one thing we were discussing was uh, that that can happen to us good people, that sometimes there's just this little tickle or, or adrenaline rush to do something nasty. So the, the hook for sometimes aggression or for even harming other people is the, the adrenaline rush of the pleasure that comes for something. At the yeah, that's almost like adding a little vitality to your life. Yeah, yeah, it's a feeling of aliveness. And um, the, uh, that's why sometimes I call uh, desire and hate caffeine of the soul. People rely on the caffeine and so and uh, it's, uh, once we stop using that kind of caffeine, it might take a while. Some people have to go through a huge transition, just like withdrawal, uh, caffeine withdrawal from coffee. They have to go through a transition period to, go, to kind of find, eventually then you find a natural energy or vitality that is not dependent on that kind of... And it could be very subtle I and mean, very hard to detect yeah. unless you're really insightful. Right, I agree. Thank you. So, so I see someone else back there. I see a hand. We um, had a question uh, when we were discussing don't take anything that's not freely given to you. Yeah. We got into the concept of borrowing, and we don't know, well, at least I don't know, if it's permissible to ask, mm. can I borrow this? Because remember, you gave the example of the yes. monk who would just look at the book. Right. I mean, why wouldn't the monk say, could I Look at your book, you know. Um, so, or maybe you need help, you know. And um, I'm borrowing your time. I'm borrowing your skill, or whatever I'm borrowing. Okay, it's a borrow. Um, um, can you ask? It's completely fine to ask. 
No one, you know, you can always ask, and the person can always say no or yes, they can offer. But the asking is, uh, is a, I think, a healthy, good thing to do if there's a need or a desire. Thank you. Well, kind of um, also along this, the same line of not taking what is uh, not freely given or any of the other things, um, in my discussion, I think it, it, it's been occurring to me more and more that um, I, I guess what the meditation is doing is helping to create a stronger, um, I think it's kind of a psychological container. So that if I don't act, I, I may still be left with the feeling of wanting to do something. Right. So I'm creating a bigger, stronger, more flexible container to hold that as I begin to learn how to that's right. actually deal with what's going on inside. Right, and that's part of the value of these kinds of precepts is, we, um, uh, is that because we come up against the boundaries of where we want an impulse to do something, one of these things, we don't do it. It gives us a, a greater opportunity then to turn the attention around and understand what's happened, what's going on inside of us, what's the motivations, what's the impulse, what's the feelings. Absolutely. And so if people are interested in doing this inner work, uh, uh, the impulse to do these kinds of things becomes a very important door, very important door into understanding the depth of who we are, what's going on for us. And often that can be missed if we act on the impulse. Yes? Um, I I was just aware through this previous um, um, exchange that Part of um, maybe adding to to non-stealing yeah. or non-taking of what's not being offered is is saying no when I don't want to offer something that somebody is asking me. <laughs> somebody says, uh, you know, will you give me your time on this? My abil- my openness to saying no is part of how stealing or not taking comes about. It's, it's yeah. every bit as much an important part of it. Yeah, the, the, um, the expression it, freely given, uh, I think mostly means you know, inspiringly given. Someone wants to give. If they're co- co- coerced into giving, uh, and sometimes people coerce themselves into giving because they don't want to say no, they're embarrassed, they're afraid that people are going to judge them and say, oh, well, yeah, you could, you can, you know. <laughs> but they really don't want them to. You can come and spend the night in my guest room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, so, um, so I think there's a, it's a very healthy thing to know how to say no. Uh, some people, that's the huge, huge, huge learning to know how to say no. Because uh, culturally and familiarly, all kinds of reasons, the no is uh, not permiss- permissible. And some people who are really good at saying no, uh, it might sometimes it's useful to learn other ways of saying it that somehow you know is more generous. Like you know, you know, sometimes no is really good, and sometimes you know that that doesn't really work for me today, or something. Something that kind of you know, or something that kind of understands them. It gives some sense of exchange and connection, as opposed to a wall that these people disconnected. I always feel so much easier when I trust that somebody will um, speak speak up for themselves in that way. Then, then I don't have to be worried so much That's about right. taking. That's right. If it's not. That's right. The right thing. That's right. 
So the first part of the discussion was uh, the benefits of these, these uh, three restraints in terms of one's practice. I'm curious, as your group discussed it, did you come up uh, with new understandings of that that stretch your understanding, or was it just the same old, same old, same old? Was there some feeling of something new coming up, or new understandings? And did, you, did you feel stretched? Yeah, sometimes if there's two mics, if you can, uh, if you see someone near you who has their hand up, if we can have them being passed in between. Yes? Well, one thing that came up is um, if you're, you just get the tongue. The on the side. Green button on the side. If you're challenged with a decision about your action and it's difficult, it can cause you to grow because you're forced to do something difficult or just to find a more creative way of doing something that you hadn't thought about before. Mm -hmm. Great. That's nice. Thank you. If you hold it straight, uh, 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 if you hold it horizontally, it actually works better. Hello? Hello? It's not on. Not on. Not on. Folks, there's a green button. Oh, there it is. Okay. <laughs> on. <laughs> okay. Um, there's so much that came out of my discussion with Gail was very rich. And um, I was talking about this topic of taking what's not given and how I uh, sometimes allow myself to to take something for myself uh, and shut out other people and um, we were talking about you know how the awareness can open open that up, and we can become aware of the compulsive quality of one's desires and um, we were talking about me going into the bookstore, and there's one comfy chair left, and I got to get there before anyone else can <laughs> can arrive there and um there's a certain satisfaction I get out of getting the comfy chair, but then looking deeper uh, toward my wish to relieve suffering and bring the end of suffering, that deeper satisfaction doesn't come up at all. So, um, but then we were saying how you have to be careful that you then just don't make another rule for yourself, you know, like, oh, you can't have the comfy chair, that's bad. <laughs> so she was saying um, it could be a practice of generosity towards myself to invite myself to, <laughs> which kind of changes the, the view. So I no longer, you know, have a beeline to the chair. I'm just... You know, it's just kind of 
changing it a little bit so I'm not competing with other people for the only chair. Yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> may, may, I, may I walk towards the chair calmly? <laughs> and, and may it be that whoever gets there first is the one who receives my generosity. <laughs> and if I'm there first, I get to receive it. And another thing I wanted to mention was that um, what came up with um, an appreciation of how you um, suggested that practice of generosity for people coming late. And I was saying to Gail, I bet he, he waited a long time before he, I mean, that's just my imagination, but um, sometimes I, I don't quite know how to suggest a way of being to another person without blaming them or making them feel bad about themselves. And just that idea of bringing up generosity as, as a way of being was, yeah. was very good. Thank Great. You. Thank you very much. Okay. Any last words that someone feels important to say before we stop for lunch? Shirley, if there's some. In our, my first group, um, a gentleman said something that was very useful um, because I've noticed that I have resistance to these restraints. And so I realized I was sort of taking them as um, can't break rules because he said, just try it and see what its effect on you is. And I said, oh, what a concept. (laughs) (laughs) Never occurred to me. Okay, great. Thank you. That was a great way to end. So um, we'll take about an hour. Let's start again at 2 o'clock. And those of you who are new to this today, the people who know, have been here before, they will set up tables in the outer hall and chairs, and, uh, and you can sit around there. There's microwave in the refrigerator and, and uh, water in the kitchen. There's hot water and tea, as you see. And you're welcome to take a chair, even the table, if you feel it's warm enough, out in the parking lot if you want to sit out there and get fresh air. Just uh, before 2 o'clock, it all has to be put back, uh, put away. And, um, and also, uh, lunch during these days is a talking lunch. If you want to talk with people, and um, this is a good time, and this is a friendly group. If you don't know anybody, um, now you know some people. You've been talking, but if you, if you, um, uh, I would encourage you if you're new, um, if you don't be shy, just sit down with people who are already sitting down, and and assume that you're part of the group. And those of you who are already in a group, invite everyone in. So, thank you. And also, the handouts, if you would like to pick them at lunchtime, there's uh, an article about right action that I wrote, and then the reflections about right action for uh, next month.